talk about this information and then can I deliver this coin, Litecoin, MyCoin, YourCoin, Blockchain, Baby, Mondays at 1600 hours Eastern Studio A. Understanding must arise during these times of unparalleled deceit. A view into the depths of society upon which this country has fallen. A storm brews upon the horizon. It's been said that those that have the eyes to see and the ears to hear will play a paramount role in the furthering of humanity and civilized society. But can civilized society and humanity survive the coming conflicts not seen since a dawn of time in ages bypassed? But you can find true forms of information and knowledge in abundance at revolution.radio freedomsluts.com the number one listener supported radio station on the globe stand upon the right side of history Opinions expressed on this radio station, its programs, and its website by the hosts, guests, and call-in listeners or chatters are solely the opinions of the original source who expressed them. They do not necessarily represent the opinions of Revolution Radio and FreedomSlips.com, its staff, or affiliates. You're listening to Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com, 100% listener-supported radio, and now we return you to your host. Okay, I'm expecting more bumpers, but uh, you can guarantee if I'm expecting them, they won't happen. So let's just give it a minute. There we go. Prosecutors, Department of Homeland Security agents, and curious passers-by often ask me, just what is this truth jihad thing anyway? Well, everybody knows what truth is, but jihad is a misunderstood term. Jihad means effort or struggle. The greater jihad is the struggle to be a better person, while the lesser jihad is the struggle to defend the community. Prophet Muhammad, peace upon him, did say that the best jihad is a word of truth. 
flung in the face of a tyrant. And that's what we do here at Truth Jihad Radio. Every Friday, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, 5 to 7 Pacific, right here on Revolution Radio. in the paranormal, murder mystery, real natural law. Do you enjoy interviews with amazing guests? Then join Crypt Rick every Monday night, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, right here on Revolution Radio. Studio A, freedomslips.com. Welcome to the crypt. (laughs) Hey everyone, it's Barbara Jean Lindsay, the Cosmic Oracle. If you have questions about your past lives or future plans, need answers from the cosmos about your love life or career, or just want to keep your finger on the pulse of the planet, check out my show, The Cosmic Oracle, here on Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com. Thank you for tuning in to Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com. If you plan to call in and speak with one of our hosts, please turn down your radio and separate yourself from any background noise and wait for the area code to be called on before you speak. And don't forget, Revolution Radio freedomslips.com is listener supported. So stop by the homepage, freedomslips.com, visit the site support area to help support the host you're listening to's airtime. Thank you. Revolution Radio freedomslips.com, where the truth never sleeps. We're an anarcho-syndicalist commune. We take it in turns to act as a sort of executive officer for the week. Yes. But all the decisions of that officer have to be ratified at a special bi-weekly meeting. Yes, I see. By a simple majority in the case of purely internal affairs. Be quiet. But by a two-thirds majority in the case of more Be quiet. I order you to be quiet. Look, you stupid bastard. You've got no arms left. Yes, I have. Look. Just a flesh wound. I don't believe I am. Seems such a display of courage, skill, nerve, grace. Stupidity. I'll do you for that. Oh, what? Come here. What are you going to do? Bleed on me? I'm invincible. You're a loony. The Black Knight's always trump. Welcome on, welcome all. And it is that time for Roundtable Live here at Revolution Radio Freedom Slips.com. Be rolling on until 4 a.m. in the morning Eastern time. New ideas, different hosts every night, different subjects every night. You never know what's going to happen right here at the Roundtable Live. King Arthur has nothing on us. We're going around and around. Okay, hello, uh, good morning, um, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to Free Association. This is the, the round table version. Uh, 
Um, I've tried Lawrence and he's, I don't think he's available. He might be, are you there, Lawrence, or not? I did try him while the bumpers were happening, but there's no response at the moment. So I'm going to talk for a few minutes and then I'm going to play um, something from Brand New Tube's breakfast show from yesterday. Uh, which is about half an hour, and then I'll try Lawrence again and see if we can get him on for the second hour. So, my my life at the moment is is in limbo, really. I'm waiting to hear about an interview that I did last week uh, via Zoom, as interviews <laughs> happen now. Everything happens on Zoom, uh, which is fair enough, I suppose. It saves time. Uh, it Took a couple of times to organise it, but uh, it got there in the end. Well, it took one time to organise it. But it's a job that I've been seeing advertised for at least a year, and I've applied half a dozen times before. Uh, but I, I sharpened my CV up a little bit, and uh, this time round they saw me. So that's a good sign. Um, I don't know whether I'll get the job or not because they were interviewing half a dozen people for it. But uh, I should find out today at some point, which is why it's on my mind and why I'm talking about it, really. Um, Telesales job, um, selling maths and English tutoring for uh, students, children, really. People doing uh, O-levels or GCSEs as they are now in the UK. So anybody who needs tutoring, so it would probably apply quite well to uh, homeschooled children as well. It would be a way of, a way of homeschooling children. Uh, I don't know what they charge, but I think it's a reasonable amount of money for what they're doing, but but it's a very, very good service. I've looked at their reviews, and they've got like 97% positive reviews. There was one one-star review on Trustpilot, so I know they're I know they're sharp. They know what they're doing, uh, and I want to work for somebody like that. I don't want to be messing about with with people who are not not sure about how to do things. I want them, I want a company that knows what they're about. Because I'm, I'm at the point in my life where I know what I'm about now. I know enough, at least. I know enough to to be able to to make things happen in a way that suits me, that works for me. And uh, I was talking, I was thinking about how I fit the radio in with the job, because it's a full-time job. And I'm not 100% sure yet. But I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to turn myself into a production company. So I'm going to have to... I'll still do the shows, obviously, but I'm going to have to subcontract some of the um, production... So instead of me putting together clips, I'll subcontract the clips. So I'll uh, I'll subcontract the editing process. 
not there was much of an editing process going on, but uh, if I'm working full time, I can I can email somebody links to clips and tell them what I want to do, and then let them do it, and then they'll come up with what they come up with, and then I use that in the show. That's essentially how it's going to have to work. So I need 30 or 35 minutes of clips for the Saturday show. And for this one, I need two two lots of half an hour, so two lots of 30 minutes is usually how, how it works. So that will be three sets of, of clips for the week for three hours. And that's usually my formula. If I've got a formula, then that's, that's what it is. Obviously, when people are, are available, I don't need to play clips, but quite often now people aren't available, so it's it's a bit hit and miss. Uh, I may I may have to ta- change the time slot as well. If I get this job, then I'm not going to be available at 9 a.m. on a Tuesday morning until 11 because the job starts at 10:30. So I'll be travelling. And, uh, and working for the second hour. So what I'm gonna think about is moving the round table to an evening slot my time, which would potentially be after Mona's Bradler show in the, in the evening. Seven o'clock in the evening my time is Mona and then the slot I'm thinking about is 9 p.m. So that's a 4 p.m. Eastern time slot on Studio B. At the moment, it's reruns of Sean David Morton, but it does say that it's open, so it's potentially available. And uh, if I do get the job, then that's what I'll that's what will end up happening. Um, I've told them I can start on the 28th of February, which gives me a couple of weeks. So I can prepare a little bit, see if I can find somebody to subcontract um, production. What it means is I'll probably drop the round table for a month, keep the Saturday show, and then bring the round table back on Tuesday evenings. This is how it's working in my head. It may or may not turn out like this, but this is how it's working in my head. So I'll still have the three hours of content a week. It'll just be in a different slot on Tuesday. So, yeah, that's that's the plan at the moment. I'm assuming that I've got the job, which is not necessarily the case yet. I'll find out today. But uh, if I assume I've got the job and plan around it, at least I'll be ready. I'm just lining up a little bit of Sonia Poulton. Sonia does a uh, a breakfast show on Brand New Tube, which is more UK-focused than than anything else. It's much more about about British stuff and British people, but she does a good job. It's twice a week, 7.30 in the morning, my time. 
which is a bit early for really getting involved in it, but usually I watch it when I wake up, which is about now, about nine o'clock, and catch up on on who she's had on. And she was talking to a guy called Johnny Vedmore yesterday, so I'm going to line that up now. I'm going to skip the first, skip the first five minutes or so, and just. So this is Sonia Poulton, Sean Ward, and Johnny Vedmore. Johnny's a, an independent journalist, so it's about half an hour. I'm just going to let it play through, uh, and then I'll, I'll be back and ramble on for another 10 minutes or so. So enjoy. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's early in the morning. It is. It is. I may, I may look a little bit shocked, like I'd be slapped around the face. That's how I look in the morning. You look fabulous. Where's your dog? Uh, uh, my dog's on the bed. I'm, I'm with my, I'm with my little black oh my cat today. That, that's, that's what I'm doing. She's already run off now. I've harassed her. Wonderful, wonderful. Everybody, as I say, is Johnny Vedmore. As you know, he's an investigative journalist. He's a musician. He's an activist. He goes after pedos just like me. He's a presenter of a podcast. He's a video. Uh, uh, my dog's on the bed. I can't I'm, even I'm begin to do any justice to it. I'm here this morning, but you're going to yeah. give yeah. us an outline. That's what I'm doing. She's already run off now. I've harassed her. Wonderful. Wonderful. have been controlling the COVID narrative and lockdown and the restrictions since the get-go. Five people who were all linked to the same organisation. And those five people are some of them, some of the names you all know. Jeremy Farah, Richard Sykes, Roy Anderson, Edward, Edward Holmes and Neil Ferguson. Neil Ferguson and Jeremy Farah are probably the two most famous ones. Johnny, this piece, stunning investigation. Bravo, my friend. Thank journalist you. to journalist. I know how much work you put into that. What motivated you to do that piece? Okay, well, when I first got put onto the proximal origins of SARS-CoV-2 paper that got created in Nature in um, 2020 by some of these actors, organized by these actors, um, I, I was put onto that during writing them uh, a welcome leap to humanity's destruction article. Um, I was helping with Whitney Webb's article about um, a project that they're doing where they basically, after the vaccine rollout, they started um, putting forward that they were going to start testing on children as young as six months old in injecting some fluid in their brain uh, which would then map their brain and etc etc you know they felt like they had broken the boundaries so they kept going um and and looking back into the paper i thought well this jeremy farrar is obviously the 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 top dog of the operation let's go and check this out i mean jeremy farrar was in the Fauci emails for people who don't right. know that got released it said basically uh, for, um, uh Fauci and witty and all of those say uh you uh uh, Jeremy Farrar will lead the response to everything COVID, all the finance, all of the response for the um, at what is the Anglo-American world, but really also uh, Canada and Australia, you know, and, and then uh, all, most of the other countries just followed the lead afterwards. Um, uh, and so he obviously had extreme power. He was obviously also then 
for the person behind organizing the, the SARS-CoV-2 paper, which was also given to him and, and shown within the emails. But then when I looked into that SARS-CoV-2 uh, proximal origin paper, um, I, I discovered that there was, uh, there, there was like, of course, there was going to be links between the people who wrote it. But I found there was a couple of links that were really interesting, that really uh, needed to, to have a good look at. And through that, I, I ended up running into, uh, through my research, running into Roy Anderson, Neil Ferguson, and Richard Sykes. And building the story together was quite difficult because there's so much information. Um, mm-hmm. And then narrowing it down to explain to people who these people are is really hard especially when you haven't uh, ever got much time in these um, realms to do it and a lot of the time people aren't going to read a 15,000 word article which is the reason why I made a kind of different version of the article for people who like fun interactive ways on another one of my sites so that can, people can delve in and out yes. of the information yes. and I've, I've written it in a format and I had to be kind of rigid I've written a format which was very profile based and um, partially because we've got a project going on at the moment where all of this information is going to be broken down slowly and fit, uh, fit into um, uh, a computer software that will only be accessible by independent researchers um, and will be added to for that reason. So this is like a grander project that's going on. But the the core group of these five were basically led by a guy called Richard Sykes who... revolutionized uh, GlaxoSmithKline, merged uh, GlaxoWelk and GlaxoSmithKline, uh, SmithKline Beecham into GlaxoSmithKline, and then with Beecham's on the side, and then Welcome PLC got got dispersed into Glaxo, and they they reformed what was the Welcome Trust into something that was a powerful research entity. And the whole point of what Richard Sykes was doing, and this is in the mid-90s, the whole point of what Richard Sykes was doing was trying to, um, and he says this openly, emerge academia, government, and the pharmaceutical sector into some sort of cooperation that would then branch over and they, they would they would end up being in control of a lot of the research going on in the whole world. That means that if you don't do the, the research they want, they're not interested in, mm. um, yes. in funding you. Now, now, these guys would go on uh, to be given c- complete responsibility for the foot and mouth disease outbreak of 2001. Yeah. So Tony Blair literally put Roy Anderson and Neil Ferguson as the main people in charge. And that was yeah. due to Neil Ferguson's models and Roy Anderson's models, again, like in COVID, being so scary that it said, look, all of these things. Uh, Petrifying. Petrifying. Yeah. And yet. Yeah, just gone. The bird flu, was it the bird? No, it's foot and mouth. I think that Ferguson said two million. Was it foot and mouth when Ferguson, or was that bird flu? That was, uh, that bird flu, 200 million. That's it, that's it. The actual result was something like 574 definitive cases. So, I mean, I mean, what they were trying to do, what it seems like these guys were trying to do, these guys were all formed in 1994 during a Welcome Trust project in Oxford University while Roy Anderson was a Linica professor, uh, Neil Ferguson was his student, Jeremy Farrar was finishing his PhD at Oxford, Edward Holmes was running a programme for the Wellcome Trust in Oxford to recruit multiple graduates for the future, so uh, most of the people you're seeing on your screen who are manufacturing this event, who are pushing forward these control structures, these people are welcome funded, often yeah. throughout their entire career, yeah. this is a complete way to um, uh, uh, 
take control of society by sparking an event as soon as you get an option for um, a fear, enough public consent due to the fact that there's some form of um, idea that something like an epidemic or a pandemic is coming. So yeah. they tried to spark this over and over again for the past 20 years. Um, foot and mouth disease was a good trial run, and it led to 8 million uh, burning pyres of 8 million animals oh, no. uh, on the countryside. I know. I, I know. And and the thing is, is that people don't really understand the, the real close. I mean, some of these people... Sorry, guys, I've got that. Go on. <laughs> uh, some of these people um, believe we are animals, you know, we, that the lower class are animals. And so you have to understand that these people, when they're running something like this, it just looks like a simulation, which is something they do a lot right. uh, for the events. Now, over the next 20 years, they would take power and control in all sorts of areas. Uh, Roy Anderson would end up working for the MOD, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, World Health Organization, all of the normal names. Um, all of these people would end up um, seeding more and more scientists some of who I mentioned um, within within uh, like um, Debbie Shida, who is on TV a lot, goes uh, is from the University a of lot, Oxford, and, and some of the things she says uh, are obviously well, it's obviously she's just there to keep consent for people complying, which she says herself. Online, you know, or you listen to these guys; these guys say what they they they, they mean. These guys were responsible for covering up the release of SARS-CoV-2, the initial transcription of the um, uh, or, or original virus sequence coming from the labs on January the 11th. I mean, that was Edward Holmes who did that. He's going to, I believe, win a joint Nobel Prize with the Chinese um, transcriber of the genome um, for that. Um, it's interesting that he was the one who did it and he was the one who released it because he's also the one who's in charge of a lot of everything. And it seems like the whole process, to cut a long story short, because it is a, a long story, um, the whole process was... The Americans had a virus gain of function program going on in Wuhan. Something went wrong or something happened that was going to make them look very bad. And they needed some people who look much better than the CIA or the NSA to cover it up. And they went to the British because the British all have posh accents of royal and their own people, the American people will go, oh, I believe anything they say. And so they do. And they thought that would work. But unfortunately for them, this is a global thing. And not all of us believe in a posh English accent. Actually, a load of us believe that posh English accents are something to, to, to look at and say, yeah. hey, wait a minute, yeah. you're the first person I should question if you're speaking, yeah. <laughs> you're speaking down to me like this. Well, they do speak down uh, to people. And these people are really, um, they also, I mean, Richard Sykes was responsible for the entire UK vaccine rollout, all the booster programs. Yeah, no, it's phenomenal. It's actually phenomenal the way that you outline this. And what I find absolutely extraordinary is that not only are you able to pinpoint key moments at how they all intersect and what their role is, but what, what continues to baffle me is how does a man like Neil Ferguson continue to have any form of credibility in terms of always being cited, always being followed? What is that all about? Yeah, the incredibility is his credibility. Um, he, he's untouchable in that sense. You know, he's, he's some of the things he does are so obviously lacking in any type of, um, of responsibility or yeah. uh, he doesn't take any sort of ownership and he doesn't need to. And that's because he's got Roy Anderson protecting him the whole time. And Roy Anderson is extremely powerful. I mean, Roy Anderson's history goes back to even, you know, uh, he's one of the older. I think there's a structure here that's definable. And in that structure, above Neil Ferguson, Jeremy Farrar, Edward Holmes, sits Richard Sykes and Roy Anderson, probably together. Above 
above them is Robert May and um, uh, Sir John Krebs, who both are members of the Royal Society, House of Lords, um, very, very established. establishment. Yeah, I mean, full it, establishment. Yeah, it's full on establishment. So what do you feel? Because obviously you, you, you talk about Debbie Shredar, for example, who's always on Good Morning Britain. I mean, these people are all across uh, mainstream broadcasting, obviously. So their message has been the dominant one throughout these whole last two years. But what do you feel? I mean, I know I know that you're of, of the same mind as I am, and that is this is like completely exaggerated. This is agenda led, etc. Et but what do you feel this is all about, Johnny? Um, th- this is all about a uh, 130 year quest for control through viruses. This is, is something that has not been a government led operation through the entirety of its history. If you go back to 1890 and you start working through the different actors like in, in Russia, Daniel uh, Zabolotny, who was out there, um, they, they pushed him away from the government, said, no, he's nothing to do with the government. And then he went out and looked for ways mm-hmm. to harness plague and etc. Um there was there was another man. Now this is really interesting. A British man. Well, let's say it was a, a, a American called Doctor Strong who was out doing um, research, and he was linked to the Rockefeller Institute. Um, and there was a, a British man called Reginald Farrar, who was the main epidemiologist at the time okay. during that period. Related. I will tell you when I've finished with my research, but okay. um, extremely suspicious seeing uh, Jeremy Farrar's grandparent, uh, grandfather, Eric Farrar, uh, sorry, uh, father, Eric Farrar. Apparently, um, he was born to a uh, man and woman who were 52 years old in 1917. Really? Yeah. How interesting. Now, all of these people, including Reginald Farrar, including uh, Zab- uh, Daniel Zabalotny, including Dr. Strong, including uh, a guy called Dr. Wu in China at the time, in all of this period, they were all working for separate entities in the government. They were all working for foundations, for trusts, and it's never changed. It's not changed. No, it's the, the same. Yeah. Yeah, the real control and power is based upon principles that come from the early 1900s. A lot of people don't understand and have been car- uh, um, uh, car- uh, made into a cartoon version of what they really are um, uh, through time. But really, I think there's there's one thing that you, you can take from uh, 1923 and the release of some information from um, the Rhodes uh, Trust, who would say that basically their idea was to create three main blocks in the world. Anglo-American power block, which would be uh, America, Britain, Canada, Australia, South Africa. That would be one of the main power blocks. The other would be Europe and the other would be Russia. That's changed over time and it's now the Russian is the BRIC countries. But really what they're trying to do is they're trying to push us. And you see the past, look at Brexit, look at all of the things, look at everything from the past, everything. They're trying to divide Britain and Europe so that they have this one big powerful state over here and they had this one powerful European state and then one powerful um, East Asian state or Russian state, uh, Russian control state. Those three blocks will then allow them to centralize control and create trouble between each other. That's turmoil. That is very Orwellian, very close, similar to 1984. And it's exactly what that idea was based on in the first place, is these mad guys' ideas. These authors knew who these guys were. They knew what they were trying to create back then because it has not changed. This agenda is as old 
as time. And it is about population control. That, and that's what I was just going to get to. And the agenda is about population control, without a shadow of a doubt. Yep. And a cert- they want to create a certain type of population, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the the weird thing is, is that when you actually explore uh, what will happen if they get away with their actions, well, they have to target the um, most naive of society. And once you get through those, eventually you end up with just your adversaries. You just end up with the people who oppose you. So one day, if their plan continues to work out, it will seriously just be us versus them. It will be the people who oppose them strongly versus, and, and, to, and versus them. And I think they want to make that uh, dynamic because it's a fantastic, romanticized version of their cultish behavior. You know, they want to have something big and powerful. And it's something we don't understand. I really, I, 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 you got to we got to stop thinking about it in silly terms of um secret groups going around in special robes yes secret groups go around in public in special robes and That's say right. what they do nowadays in plain sight in yeah. plain sight it is absolutely sure you're not surprised by any of this are you oh hello sean yeah he's on the mute ask to unmute oh sorry there you go that's all right I was trying to be safe because I didn't want to interrupt you. If I was, oh, don't uh, worry. It's OK. I just say, are you surprised by any of this? Um, obviously, yeah, I am. I mean, I probably was a bit younger when other attempts were made. Um, but I mean, I think it's safe to say this is a bit of a, a flu de tete, a bit you know, like a coup de tete, but using the flu. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> around the whole world. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> flu detect. A flu detect. <laughs> um, so I feel like, you know, there's been men that have always tried to do this, and the fact that they've done it with a virus is insane. Um, but I do think that it probably is based on who these people's fathers were and what families they came from, and it's the same mentality. Uh, Daddy wanted. Yeah. The population down. Daddy was a eugenics. Daddy yeah. was, yeah. So or I think, is Johnson his daddy? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Same with Bill Gates. Yeah. There's an argument Bill Gates is cousin with Maxwell. Robert yeah. Maxwell. Or, yes, I, I, Maxwell. That I, family, I yeah. have done a full research on his family history, and that link is very, very, like, uh, it's a... It, all Maxwell links are hard to prove because yes. of the way Robert Maxwell is. But I could tell you he's, um, uh, his descendancy goes back to Jeffrey Gates III, who had his head chopped off by Mary I on the first day she took power and had tried oh to do a coup back in that time as well. So oh wow. the family does it all the way through. Eventually, Israel Gates would be setting up his stall in the center of the slave trade uh, in the late 1700s in Rhode Island. Um, and and it would continue on to the, the Gates we have today, who was separate themselves from that history on purpose because yeah, yeah you're, yeah. you're, 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 exactly. you're right. You'll love this. A D in the comments says flu world order. Um, <laughs> and uh, I think that's pretty clever. So listen, this, this takes us very neatly into the other thing that you want to talk about, Johnny, which I think is so vital is this whole rhetoric that we're now hearing. We're constantly hearing about HIV, sudden heart attacks, the whole normalization of it. What you know, this is disturbing you as much as it's disturbing all us. Take it away. Well, I I, I would say that the other day I was so I, I was oh I was 
it was visceral reaction. I saw Jeremy oh. Farrar retweeting something warning of a rise in heart disease. Um, of course, not mentioning that that anything to do with the vaccines. I asked for the proximal origin of that heart disease, rise in heart disease, but he didn't respond. Um, it, these these guys are going to start talking about things which seem to be um, uh, what is being described as a vaccine acquired immune deficiency. There you go. Syndrome. So basically, um, if the reason why, and this is very simple, it's very simplistic, but it's very easy to understand. The reason why everybody didn't get one vaccine is because you would have something called vaccine acquired, like syndromes come out of it. Uh, once uh, you have a vaccine in massive populations, you get loads of mutations come out. So the more people who have the same vaccines, the more the, the, the virus tries to change and the more it mixes around in a population full of people who have also got to, and those mutations cross and it gets worse and worse and it snowballs out of control. So these things happen the more you give it. So they've tried to split it up to smaller groups, but still large groups. And now what we've got is a situation where um, people are obviously having symptoms um, uh, and those uh, are being researched and studied um, papers are being brought out and the mainstream media are saying it's all conspiracy theories from posts on Facebook you know th- th- this is there's a start of something happening and I think anecdotally everybody feels it everybody knows someone yeah. I know yeah. I know a good really lovely guy called Stu if you're watching Stu I love you he, he's out in the park stays with his doggo um, and he's been getting uh, having serious like heart problems recently yeah. that have come after the like second the second boost or the, the first booster yeah. um, it, it, there's a lot of people who have this anecdotal sort of evidence but there's also a lot of evidence coming out and there seems to be um, a massive uh, push to say that HIV is on the rise and one of the reasons this is believed to be is quite simply when they uh, put in um, what's called a 12 new nucleotide insert of the spike S protein into the virus. This is what I understand by it. That was taken from HIV. This means that uh, HIV links on to people with uh, these cells roaming around in their body, something along those lines. It means that they say that, number one, you're more likely to contract HIV if you've had a vaccine and you have these issues. Um, But there's also symptoms of uh, what we would have seen as AIDS coming out in certain people. Um, and there's a big question again about the, the root of HIV and the chain, the turning into AIDS, seeing as HIV was never really isolated. Um, there's lots of programs about that if you want to mm, go back in indeed, history and escape people want to go down that rabbit hole. And what's interesting is Burroughs Welcome, the American arm of Welcome Trust and Welcome PLC in the 80s were the ones pushing AZT, which was a gene killing, uh, therapy that was given to um, mainly gay men who were considered HIV positive, even though they had an isolated virus, and went on to kill them brutally. The drug itself was a gene killer. It does nothing. It's no medicinal value in that drug, and yet they pushed it, including Roy Anderson in Britain during the 80s, who was put out there to push it. And he was, of course, welcome trust later on. This is so deep. This is, I mean, and this is the thing, is that it's really important what you say. Let's forget all about shadowy figures operating, you know, puppeteers, forget all that. It's all in plain sight. The government tell us what they're going to do. There's a, there's a vaccine consultation 
online, which please, please, please fill out. Johnny, do you know about the vaccine consultation? No, no, I've been busy. <laughs> right, yes, it's just, it's just a smidge, right? But yeah. I, I, I'll give you some information later. But basically, okay. they've given they've given no heads up to anybody. They just put it out. They've given a very short timeline in which people should respond to the consultation. And again, it's about the same thing, and that is mandatory vaccinations. And they want to slip it under the radar. But it is all there in plain sight. You're yeah, blowing yeah. everybody's minds this morning, Johnny, as I knew you would. Let's just say hello to everybody. Morning, Ray. D. Hall, Spacey, Human Creative, Lugabug, Shin, Esther, uh, Divine, Tarzan, Gummy, uh, oh, just so many, Soul Vanguard, Time Now, Human Creative, Ricky, Craig, Last People, and on and on and on. People just, I mean, the thing is, is that we do have very savvy viewers, because, and they're, they're, uh, while they're not necessarily up to speed with what you're saying, Johnny, because it's mind-blowing what you're saying, but as a journalist, I sat down last night with your article and I started fact-checking it because I have to, mm. obviously. And, uh, and and I was like, yep, yep, got this right, got this right, got this right. Because, you know, and the thing is, is that your content is so detail-heavy. You leave no stone unturned. And that's what's really important is that you do go into the families of these people. And that is so absolutely vital because this is not something that's just happened over the last 10 years. This is long standing and a depopulation program, which which they're all in on. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the thing is, we've got this world um, and for them, they still go by the Malthusian idea that there's too many people in the world. And so there will not be enough resources. And so it's for our own good that they chop our heads off and they give us viruses and they they push us over a cliff and push us into war. Um, this is a continuous frame of mind that they work upon. Um, all of your, I, I don't want to blow everybody's mind too much, but understand that the World Economic Forum has been in control of this world for a long time. Understand that some of the young global leaders put up by the World Economic Forum were Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, Nicolas Sarkozy, Emmanuel Macron, uh, Vladimir Putin, Justin Trudeau, Angela Merkel. These people are already in power. This yeah. is takeover has already happened. We are late to the party. Right. There is a globalist agenda that's already in play, already in place. And you could tell what it looks like because while it wears blackface in the past, it will call you uh, uh, all types of names for peaceful protest. Yes. That's how you see who is your enemy. When you go out and you, you push your rights forward, and you say, these are my rights, and someone pushes back, that is your enemy. You have rights. Hold on to them. These people want to destroy them. They're already in power. We are very late to the party. That is a really important note to end on. We are already late to the party. So we have some catching up to do. Everybody, Johnny Bedmore, never, ever, ever disappoints, of course. <laughs> have a lovely day, Johnny. I will put nice a Nice to meet you, Sean. Thanks, Johnny. That was incredible. Thank you. That is a mind blower, isn't it? I'll put a link to your latest article in the description, Johnny, and come back again soon, please. We Thank love you. you so much. Okay, I was really pleased when I found that uh, at half an hour uh, because it's exactly the type of material that, that people need to hear. And it's slowly but surely all of these links are, are becoming public. And slowly but surely, all of the history is becoming public. 
slowly but surely all the the uh, manoeuvring of people into positions is becoming public and once it's public they can't do it anymore because it'll be objected to it'll be pointed out it'll be criticised it'll be ridiculed it'll be noted in uh, no uncertain terms so that's what we need to do we need to make this public we need to make the process public the networking needs to be needs to be made public so from the sound of it these guys all met at Oxford University and I know there's there's something I was already investigating at Oxford University which is at All Souls there's a link to Cliveden House which is the Astor family's property and there's a link to Cecil Rhodes and the, the Rhodes Scholarships and the Rhodes Rhodes Trust, I think he said, the Rhodes Foundation that brings people over, which um, anybody who's a, a a potential, it's a it's a young global leaders program in effect, which Bill Clinton was part of. He was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford. So that's the network. The network is through universities. It's through scholarships. It's through building training programs. It's all of these types of things. So we need, once we know what they're doing, once we know what the mechanisms are, we can keep an eye on everything. So I'm, I'm slowly but surely mapping these things out with real world information, with real people, with real family histories. So I'm looking at the Astor family, I'm looking at Clifton House, um, there was a scandal in the, in the early 60s, I want to say Clifton House, but, it's, but they call it Clifton, I think. So the, the Astor family was involved in the um, Profumo affair. John Profumo was, was involved with um, Mandy Rice Davies and Christine Keeler and they met at Cliveden House so at a party and uh, there there was a Russian diplomat involved and it was a big scandal in the early 60s it was basically a an MI5 honeypot operation, I think, as far as I can tell. So they were they were using using um, teenage girls in effect, eighteen year olds uh, who were dancing at, at the clubs in the West End of London, but were spending time at the weekend at uh, at stately homes. And meeting diplomats, meeting all of these people, so they were involved in the um, the aristocracy. And that became a, a security issue, and it became a big scandal because John Profumo was uh, allegedly having an affair 
Christine Keeler. And uh, it went as far as the the courts. The, there was a big, there was a trial. And somebody ended up killing themselves. Somebody ended up committing suicide. That's the chiropractor that was involved, whose name I can't remember off the top of my head, but uh, played by John Hurt in the movie. If anybody wants to to take a look at that, it's a movie called Scandal. And I haven't found it online as yet. I don't. I don't know whether it's on on BitChute yet. If I can find a copy of it online, I'll post it, but I haven't found it as yet. So that's the 1960s, and before that, there was uh, there was something going on during the Second World War at Clifton House as well, which I, which was in a movie, um, which was a they were they were talking to. Um, not, they were potentially Nazi collaborators, I think. I don't know the details, but there's a movie about a potential peace process, and that was being organised at Clifton House. So again, it's the Astor family, and all of the people around the Astors that were involved in that, and that comes partly to the, the connection to All Souls and to Cecil Rhodes, goes back a long way and uh, it's something that's worth investigating it's on my list I've got quite a few things that are on the list to be investigated and I, I will get round to doing shows about them at some point but I keep getting sidetracked on, on current events but uh, the historical events is also something that needs to be looked at it's background information but the process has hasn't really changed that much. It's think tanks and universities and young leaders programs or whatever you want to call it. And honey traps with the intelligence service involved. So there's all of these processes going on and we just need to know where they are and who's involved and then we can track everything. So that's 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 my role in this is I'm I'm tracking the history so that we can track what's going on now as much as we as much as possible. I try and stay away from mainstream news as much as I can, but uh now and again I buy buy the, the Times or the Telegraph or the spec the Spectator I've got a subscription to, so I'll keep an eye on on things through that really. But that's more of an opinion. It's more editorial, but it's uh, it covers some of the, some of this material, and Private Eye covers this material as well. So I'm going to start subscribing to Private Eye, I think, because it'll give me some clues as to where to where to research. Although it's uh, satirical, it's all uh, it's got a lot of a lot of gossip going on in there, and it's all all comes out in Private Eye before it comes out anywhere else. In general, that's usually how it works. So that's so that's my plan is to start start getting a subscription to Private Eye, and I'll, I'll between the Spectator and Private Eye, I should be able to know what's going on in advance and research and and put together decent radio shows. So Revolution Radio, in case you're not aware, is listener supported. 
Uh, we're all volunteers. If you if you do have any spare dollars, then you're welcome to to come down to the you to the website, which is revolution.radio. Uh, you'll see on the on the main menu there's a donations tab. Uh, you can give a one-off donation, or you can buy merchandise, or there's the place to to set up a Patreon monthly subscription. Um, five dollars a month or ten dollars a month or whatever it is you can afford uh, it's all used to to keep the servers running to keep the technical side of the operation running the technical staff are all volunteers as well the management are all volunteers so it runs 24 7 uh, two studios and it's all volunteers it's a remarkable operation very very interesting way to do things and uh, very successful we're in we're in the 11th or 12th year now I'm never quite sure but I think we just started the 12th year so uh, thanks to everybody involved uh, they do a remarkably good job I'm trying to do my little bit in my own way uh, in my own style and uh Whatever contribution I can make, I'll make along the way. But I've got to try and find myself a job and get stable again in terms of my finances, and then I can start thinking about building something here that's a similar operation or, or using, I don't know how, how that will work, using people to, to develop content for me that I can use and that we can maybe share amongst people amongst the host or whatever the, the best content that's fact checked and and whatever the best I can do anyway under under whatever time limits I've got uh, I'll do the best I can do anyway thanks for listening I'll be back in about three or four minutes it's time to put the kettle on uh, we've got some station announcements coming up and I'll be back as I say, for the second hour in about three or four minutes. Thomas, a.k.a. a mad painter. I'd like you to join me Monday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Open Canvas. Don't forget to bring an open mind. Yes, folks, that's right. Bring an open mind to an open canvas. Again, that is Monday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern. You opposed government corruption. This is Revolution Radio, freedomslips.com. You don't need to expect us. We're already here.
Murder mystery. Real natural law. Do you enjoy interviews with amazing guests? Then join Crypt Rick every Monday night, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, right here on Revolution Radio. Studio A, freedomslips.com. Crypt Rick's iPhone thinking. Welcome to the Crypt. <laughs> Join me at Revolution Radio, Studio B, at 11am on Saturday, for free association, when we take a look at philosophy, spirituality, psychology, social issues, and geopolitics. It's every Saturday at 11am Eastern. On Studio B at freedomslips.com. Enter into a world unseen on Raven Star's Witching Hour. You will encounter eclectic topics from the realm of spirit brought into our matrix of truth. With your host, the Solaris Blue Raven. Solaris will bring you an array of unique guests covering topics from ghostly spirits to amazing anomalies, covert technology, UFOs, and shadowy global events. And that's right here at RevolutionRadioFreedomSlips.com, Saturdays, midnight till 2 a.m. Eastern Time. Revolution Radio, where information never sleeps. Let the magic rise. Galactic Interstellar Council on Revolution Radio Studio A, Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern. Join us as we traverse the Starseed Paradigm. As expressed in the time-space continuum that we know as the divine expression of love and light. Integrating this conscious unity into the galactic paradigm. So welcome all, both terrestrial beings and galactic beings as one. So be it. You're listening to Revolution Radio. Thank you for listening to Revolution Radio at FreedomSlips.com. Any commercial advertising you may hear in this program is of the sole discretion and benefit of the host of whose program you are listening to. Revolution Radio does not endorse any commercial products, nor does it accept monetary compensation for on-air advertising of commercial products, nor will it ever. We are and shall remain 100% listener-supported. Any product advertising on this program are considered used at higher risk, and Revolution Radio shall not be held liable for any claims or damages received from any product advertised within this program. Revolution Radio, where information never sleeps. Thanks for listening while we took that short break here at Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com. And now we're going to get back to your host.
Okay, I was just uh, looking through Johnny Vedmore's website, and there's a video on there called Controller Virus, Isolating Death, Plague in Manchuria. So it's 18 minutes long, and I think I'm going to play it, and then I'm going to read some of the article, um, the article that he was talking about in the in the previous interview. So all of these things fit together. Um, I'm relying on Johnny Vedmore's research for for all of this really but uh, it's something that people need to know about so I'll put a link in the in the chat room for the, for the documentary and here we go it's called controller virus isolating death part one plague in Manchuria My fellow Americans, tonight I want to speak with you about our nation's unprecedented response to the coronavirus outbreak that started in China and is now spreading throughout the world. Today, the World Health Organization officially announced that this is a global pandemic. We have been in frequent contact with our allies and we are marshalling the full power of the federal government and the private sector to protect the American people. The story of COVID-19 doesn't begin in the 21st century. It's not simply a virus from a laboratory in some far-off Chinese metropolis. The genesis of what we're experiencing now started a long time ago. It is 1911 in Chinese Manchuria. A pneumonic plague, which was thought to have originated from a marmot indigenous to the region, is wreaking havoc on the population of this north Chinese province. The Tarabagan marmot's fur was thick and effective for warmth in the cold climate. Its rich and abundant fats were used to treat joints on leather armor. Its skin was a local delicacy, and its meat was tough but a fine addition for the broths and stews which filled the many needy cooking cauldrons of northeast Asia. You would think, seeing as they have a source of this virus living on their doorstep, that the area would have suffered from historic plagues which were worse than anything that blighted Europe. 
but this wasn't so. Estimates of the population of Manchuria were around 20 million in 1910s, although the data suggests that many inhabitants were not recorded. The locals knew how to prevent the disease from becoming a larger issue. Firstly, the diseased animals were notable in their silence. When caught and in cages, a healthy marmot will make a lot of noise. The silent ones are most likely to be infected with the virus, and the trappers who were used to dealing with these creatures would check then for coagulation of blood under the paws of the animals to confirm if their catch was carrying the plague. This would eliminate nearly all of the spread of the disease. But the Western markets at the time were demanding marmot fur in abundance, and this had led to changes in the way marmot was hunted. Before, the marmots had been almost exclusively hunted by trappers on horseback, but the increased demand saw other less experienced trappers target the creature's burrows. It is here where the sick and plague-ridden marmots are thought to retire to die. When plague outbreaks did happen in this region, it would be strict isolation of people infected for a period until recovery, or in the majority of cases, death. All the dead were burnt and buried, weather permitting. The first time that mass cremation had ever been allowed in Chinese history. The Buryats of nearby Mongolia had their own more severe methods of controlling infection where any person who was thought to be infected was sewn up in their tent and isolated until the smoke stopped. These kind of grim routines and the community's understanding of how the virus behaved meant that larger outbreaks had not been previously prevalent. The ruling Chinese authorities had put a Chinese Malayan man named Dr. Wu in charge of the anti-pandemic organization efforts. Dr. Wu was very young for such a grand project but he didn't only prove himself to be the right man for the job, he helped to create and standardize a successful administrative response to halt the spread of a dangerous pandemic which could be repeated in any country. He would later win a Nobel Prize for inventing the N95 mask, which are still the gold standard and used in hospitals today. The global epidemiological community was in its infancy, but there would be enough of a structure to allow the Chinese to ask major nations for assistance during the pandemic the Chinese would specifically request the top specialists of Russia, USA, Japan and Britain to come for the first ever international medical symposium to be held by the Chinese. Each of these countries would choose their preferred candidate. some of the top epidemiologists and bacteriologists from all around the globe together for the first significant collaboration to battle a pandemic. The first ever medical symposium that be held by China would be a great success. But the Chinese were disappointed by some of the appointees to this international conference of pandemic response. 
The U.S. were keen to learn more about the methods used to get the spread of the virus under control. The U.S. State Department would contact George W. Davies, chair of the American Red Cross, to hunt down and appoint the appropriate representative. Davies would go on to consult with the Rockefeller Institute and eventually would nominate Dr. Richard P. Strong. Dr. Strong, who is president of the Army Board for Investigation and Tropical Diseases in the Philippine Islands and was a member of the Bureau of Science based in the U.S. government institution in Manila, left for the symposium a month early along with his assistant, Dr. Teague. The Japanese had failed to make any statement of their intent to assist until a famous Japanese microbiologist, Kitasato Shibasaburo, who was the head of the Institute for Studying Infectious Diseases in Tokyo, just happened to show up in Manchuria during an inspection tour of officials. He would also release his speech on the Manchuria plague in Japanese and English on the same day. The Russians had a range of potential experts to send and would eventually decide to appoint Dr. D. F. Sabolotny, who was a professor of bacteriology at the St. Petersburg Women's Medical Institute. The Russians were keen to stress that the selection was completely politically unbiased, describing Zabolotny as a pure scientist. The British did not make a good impression on the Chinese from the outset. Dr. Wu had requested that Britain send Sir W.J. Simpson, who had gained international fame for his work on plague in South Africa and Hong Kong. But this request was denied by the British. They would instead send Dr. Reginald Farrar, who headed the Board of Health of London. The other international appointees, as well as the Chinese hosts, would find it difficult to understand what specific qualifications made Farrar a suitable addition. But later connections to the British Red Cross and the League of Nations may suggest that the British had another agenda. In the winter of early 1911, while Reginald Farrar studied the largest outbreak the region had seen for a long time, he made observations that would be fundamental for the British establishment to understand how populations respond to pandemics. And the conclusions of his following paper were astounding. Farrar investigated why the locals acted in the way they do and why they take the precautions they took to ward off the disease. But he was also quick to realize the usefulness of the psychological effects of the pandemic. He would later report his findings in the epidemiological section of the Royal Society of Medicine journal, ominously titled Plague in Manchuria, and began the paper by writing, During the winter of 1910-1911, Manchuria was ravaged by an outbreak of pneumonic plague, which recalls some of the historic outbreaks of the Middle Ages, but to which modern times afford no parallel. When compared with the mortality caused by the bubonic plague in India, the actual proportions of the Manchurian epidemic do not seem large, but it captured the popular imagination by reasons of its dramatic features which attended it, its mysterious origins, rapid spread and appalling virulence. Farrar had supposedly been studying the bubonic plague which had ravaged parts of India over the previous decade. Millions had died in scenes that brought back medieval memories of chaos and death to any European, especially for colonial Britain. Like during the worst years of plague-ridden British history, the Indian Black Death was of the bubonic variety and was thought to spread from human to human via infected fleas. Farrar reported that Manchurian sickness was solely a pneumonic virus spread from human to human mainly through the coffin of sputum into the localized environment. Although this was mostly true, the Manchurian plague actually took three forms. 
This period may have been relatively early in medical history, yet the scientists of Britain, Japan, China and Russia were all working on reproducing this virus in animals regardless of any potential dangers. The advances in technology had meant they weren't only capable of isolating and identifying the specific strains of virus, but they were also capable of reproducing the virulent plague cultures under very basic laboratory conditions. As soon as advances in science had allowed it, scientists began doing basic observational scientific experiments. One Chinese colleague of Farrar had made his infected patients cough their sputum onto a new guinea pig every day for three weeks, only to note that every guinea pig died. Rats were injected with pneumonic plague to see what would happen, and a free-fall began on the scientific testing of the offending tarabagan marmots. Reginald Farrar's paper, although over 100 years old, is more relevant now than ever before for many reasons. As one of the main purposes for Dr. Reginald Farrar being sent to this remote deathscape was to examine the use of a very early experimental vaccination process. When referring to the medical interventions being tested during the Manchurian epidemic, Farrar's notes gives us a glimpse into the technology of the time. With regard to inoculation, Afkin's prophylactic was tried a good deal. Dr. Martin inoculated him before he went out, and Dr. Petri gave him another dose on the train. There was quite a lot of discussion on this point at the conference. Galliotti was holding out for his serum, Martini for killed agar culture, and Hafkin for Hafkin's prophylactic. Certainly many patients who had been inoculated subsequently contracted plague and died. Marvin Tov had been injected three times, Dr. Jackson he believed twice. 32 patients inoculated by Hafkin at Harbin contracted plague and died. There seemed to be some evidence that those inoculated were somewhat less liable to take the disease, but he did not think Hafkin's injection was much of a success. If one had been recently inoculated, and in a negative phase, one might, some thought, be even more liable to plague than without such inoculation. Farrar also reported on the US appointment to the Chinese symposium testing out new potential vaccine technology, saying, Dr. Strong fought hard for the use of attenuated living cultures. Dr. Strong had had exceptionally good facilities for testing this method. He was a government surgeon in Manila and his vaccine was a living culture attenuated with alcohol. After preliminary experiments on guinea pigs, he satisfied himself, as a result of an inoculation of 200 criminals who had been sentenced to death, that the attenuated living culture was as harmless as an ordinary vaccine for variola. 64 of these criminals were afterwards inoculated with the virulent plague culture, and only 16 died. They voluntarily submitted to the experiment as an alternative of execution. Though the method was not sufficiently appreciated by the conference, he himself thought it held out great promise, and if he were going to face plague again, he would have the attenuated living cultures inoculated. This was the birth of vaccine technology, and there were no limits. Farrar's Manchuria paper had shown the British epidemiological establishment something that they couldn't quite comprehend. They had failed at containing the spread of bubonic plague in India, even while they were in control of the administrative levers of power. Yet these Chinamen, as the paper refers to them on occasion, were capable of achieving significant lower casualty rate, even without the state-of-the-art sanitary authority in place. Dr. Butler would state his skepticism of the ability of the Manchurian authorities to have been responsible for controlling the spread of the virus in the discussion section of the paper that reads, 
Of course, it was a point of favour of such administration that they were dealing with a disease which immobilised almost all who were attacked. There were very rapid effects and universal death. That undoubtedly made the problem much easier than it would be where there were mild cases which went about and diffused the disease among us. Still, it's difficult to believe that the administrative measures could have achieved what has been depicted. But Farrar will point out during the discussion phase of this report that it was a matter of self-preservation which eventually controlled the infection. Isolation of the infected was not only practiced on a case-by-case basis. When neighboring towns and regions became aware of this deadly virus running amok in other areas, they immediately closed off train lines and roads without needing to be ordered to do so. Responding directly to Dr. Butler's skepticism, Farrar would say, With regard to Dr. Butler's remarks, he thought the members present had scarcely appreciated the fact that he said the crude efforts of the people had done much to protect the people from the plague. A person with plague was so ill, and all others had such a fright lest they should take it, that there was very little contact. People would not go near a house where plague was, and when folks were roused, isolation thus affected was as effective as orthodox sanitary measures. In Fujian, it was a very effective organization. The town was split into four divisions, and no person was allowed to go from one part of the town to another unless he or she had a pass. The divisions were indicated by different colors worn on the sleeve. In this paper from over a century ago, we can see the formation of all responses we still experience during a major pandemic. The real surprise for the British scientific elites was the realization that they had made a discovery that was before unrealizable. There was a significant link between the fear of a virus and the implementation of wide-reaching social control initiatives. Whilst the British were busy badmouthing the Chinese and working off the information they had received from Farrar, they seemed completely unaware of their own inadequacies in relation to pandemic response. They would display a systematic superiority complex that would sabotage any potential for coherent collaboration. Manchuria had been a steep and useful learning curve for pandemic preparedness. And every Western power would fail at the next test they were faced with. There you go. That's a little bit of medical history there for you uh, on the Fungi Monkey Channel on YouTube. Uh, it's a docu- documentary by Johnny Vedmore. And I'm I'm pleased to have discovered Johnny Vedmore. And I'm going to take a look at his website and read a little bit of this article just to acquaint myself with uh, the details of what he's saying. And uh, because I think it's important, it's a very important article. And Sonia Pilton's no slouch when it comes to knowing what's important. She, if she's got Johnny Bedmore on the sh- on the show, she she knows that it's important, and I agree with her very much. So let's have a look. So it's Johnny Vedmore, V-E-D-M-O-R-E dot com. Johnny with an H, and the article's called "The Welcome Five: The Proximal Origin of COVID Control."
So I'll see how much of this we can get through. Alright, my screen's jumping around a lot, so let me uh, get back to the beginning. Here we go, as Draconian says, the Welcome 5, the proximal origin of COVID control. As Draconian COVID-19 control structures rise up around us, Johnny Vedmore investigates a very small group of close friends linked to a powerful philanthropic organisation, the Welcome Trust who are responsible for some of the most defining events of the COVID-19 era. In this article, we'll look into the proximal origin of the Welcome Five. Jeremy Farrar, Richard Sykes, Roy Anderson, Edward Holmes and Neil Ferguson. And a band of scientific mercenaries. Uh, goes on to say, there's a small group of elite British scientists who've been busy manipulating the COVID-19 crisis to benefit a hidden agenda. These core players at the centre of creating authoritarian control. These core players at the centre of creating authoritarian control structures under the guise of COVID response, have major connections to the Welcome Trust, an ostensibly philanthropic endeavour known for funding medical research. These individuals' efforts began long before the COVID era and even include first engineering the creation of the modern-day Welcome Trust as a byproduct of the birth of the pharmaceutical giant GlaxoSmithKline. This team of men are responsible for key components of global COVID-19 response. The infamous Proximal Origin paper, the implementation of the entire UK vaccine rollout, and so much more. Yet barely anyone knows a single name of the Welcome Five. At the beginning of 2020, many people have no idea whatsoever about what would soon unfold. But there was a handful of scientists from a very small group of elite British institutions who seemed to be well prepared for the coming storm. In fact, these men would not only be made responsible for organising extremely key events throughout the pandemic response, they would also be responsible for pioneering pioneering the pandemic computer modelling methods used to send shock waves of fear throughout the world. They had also helped fund the research of many prominent supporters of their agenda and had even implemented a very similar totalitarian lockdown in response to a seemingly manufactured epidemic in the United Kingdom two decades before. On that occasion, these men became more powerful than any elected politician and were responsible for burning pyres of dead animals that, thanks to their discredited models, littered the British countryside. This article will examine a core group of British elite scientists who are all close friends and colleagues and have historic ties to the modern incarnation of the Welcome Trust. During COVID-19, one member of this small group of unaccountable actors 
Jeremy Farrar has been given almost absolute power over designing the WHO, the World Health Organization, global response to the pandemic. The same man would lead the production of the proximal origin of SARS-CoV-2 paper over a 10-day period in a seemingly brazen attempt to cover up the true laboratory origins of the COVID-19 virus. In examining Farrar's history, I discovered that this very small group of friends was all in intricately involved in the modern evolution of pandemic responses and that they had pioneered large parts of the modelling technique used to manufacture consent to introduce draconian lockdowns in the Anglo-American world, which were then adopted as the gold standard in modern pandemic responses by other nations globally. Whilst the events I map out will give you a basic idea of the history and structure of this extremely powerful and effective team of welcome trust-linked scientists, they are not the only group like this active during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, well, let me find my place again. Uh, in fact, this behaviour is paralleled in other organisations across the globe who have all helped create this, this paradigm of authoritarian control we are experiencing today. It is our jobs as researchers and journalists to define these clandestine operations the best we can. I will continue to work at defining this particular operational unit emanating from the upper echelons of the Wellcome Trust, but others must do their part too. The defining structure of any shadowy outfit involved in the organisation of such tyranny is not a simple task, but it must start somewhere. As countries all around the world have been implementing harsh authoritarian responses to the COVID-19 crisis and push for further restrictions to their citizens' freedom, it's more important than ever to look into this core band of unaccountable scientists who have been responsible for much of what we see today. For without the Welcome Five, much of this nightmare would not have been possible. <coughs> and the next, <coughs> the next paragraph is headlined, A Welcome to Welcome. <coughs> and I did a, a radio show on the Welcome Trust um, a few months, about six months ago, something like that on a thing called Welcome Leap, and on the um, the Eugenics Society archive, which is in the basement of the Welcome Trust, I think, if I remember rightly. So there's a couple of shows there that might be worth listening to in the archive. Somewhere around October, I was doing shows on eugenics. So here we go. Uh, a Welcome to Welcome. Back to the article. The Wellcome Trust is a philanthropic organisation which funds large amounts of scientific research globally. The scientific grants given out by Wellcome are extremely lucrative and sometimes stretch over a researcher's entire career. The Wellcome Trust was established to administer the fortune of American-born British pharmaceutical magnate Sir Henry Wellcome, 
It was initially entirely funded by income from Burroughs Wellcome, an early pharmaceutical giant which has been pioneer of medical technologies still used today. The trust would later be renamed in the UK as the Wellcome Foundation Limited. In 1995, the Wellcome Trust divested itself of any interest in pharmaceuticals by selling all remaining Wellcome PLC stock to Glaxo PLC and in doing so created Glaxo Wellcome. In 2000, the Wellcome name disappeared from the drug business altogether when Glaxo Wellcome merged with SmithKline Beecham to form Glaxo SmithKline PLC. Essentially removing the Wellcome name from the private sector. This period of change would see the Trust's activities on their focus shifting to recruiting and funding the very best scientists coming out of the United Kingdom's most prestigious universities. Before 2020, the Wellcome Trust was not a household name and its employees and representatives have been relatively free from any outside scrutiny. However, a few well-connected men tied to the Wellcome Trust have been responsible for key parts of the disastrous and overly authoritarian official COVID-19 response in the UK, as well as having a massive impact and influence on responses globally. These powerful men would form their current operational unit in the mid-1990s, rising out from the Wellcome Trust's rebranding during this same period. They would use the fear of disease to take power on two definable occasions. First, during the foot and mouth disease epidemic of 2001, and then again during COVID-19. In the mid-90s, Wellcome Trust was created anew as a philanthropic foundation, However, that didn't mean they would leave the pharmaceutical industry entirely. In reality, the trust would use the great wealth they had amassed to fund large parts to fund large parts of modern scientific research at some of the most prestigious establishments, which would not only aid the big pharmaceutical giants by proxy but would also allow the people at Wellcome to redesign the, the direction of research to suit their allies within the pharmaceutical industry. Another benefit for Wellcome was that this system allowed them to recruit and groom an entire generation of scientists to advance the organization's agenda. While the vast majority of scientists and research who are funded by Wellcome Trust's lucrative grant schemes are likely completely unaware of the Foundation's true political reach and power. They're often working as small cogs in a machine which they cannot really see from their relatively ground-level perspectives. When inspected closely, the Welcome Machine also appears to provide a mechanism for the UK Ministry of Defence or its allies abroad to continue potentially catastrophic gain of function continue potentially catastrophic gain-of-function experimentation while simultaneously being able to quickly cover up any lab leaks when they do happen. In this article, I will show you just two 
just a very small part of that machine, focusing in on a very select five people who are all connected by a focused recruitment drive in 1994. In that year, the core of this group, Richard Sykes, Roy Anderson, who would bring his colleague Neil Ferguson and Brian Spratt along with him, Edward C. Holmes and Jeremy Farrar, would create the processes and funding to recruit large swaths of those who now stands on their extreme end of the public COVID-19 debate. Although I will specifically mention one incident of career-long funding for 35 graduates during this article, this group also gave out large long-term grants to hundreds of other top scientific graduates from 1994 onwards. These men went on to redesign the entire face of pandemic modelling and response. So this is the mechanism he's talking about now. These men went on to design, redesign the entire face of pandemic modelling and response, as well as being responsible for the creation of multiple suspicious origin stories, including the infamous proximal origin of SARS-CoV-2 paper. From the very beginning of the story, these men have played globally significant roles, including Edward C. Holmes' translation of the original SARS-CoV-2 genomic sequence on the 11th of January 2020, Farah being given complete control over coordinating the entire COVID response by the US and UK governments, outranking both Anthony Fauci in the US and Chris Whitty in the UK. Ferguson and Anderson's apocalyptic-looking COVID-19 computer modelling, Holmes and Farrar's organisation of the Proximal Origin paper, cover-up, and Sykes being put in charge of the entire vaccine rollout in the UK, and promotion of related vaccine innovation and technology. All of the aforementioned rules should have been tasked to officials who were elected by the people, but instead we've witnessed events being manufactured in such a way that it's almost impossible to hold any one official to account. These people connected to the Wellcome Trust have been pivotal in creating a medical autocracy to which the public never consented. In this article, I will attempt to show how they've demonstrated a pattern of behaviour in the past which has been repeated during COVID-19. I will reveal how this select group of very close personal friends have been rolled out by the Ministry of Defence in the past to take in to take part in official inquiries, going on, only going on to certify government versions of any event which could cause further public scrutiny. I'll show you as much as I can in one article. Finally, let's go to the top tier. And this is the, the profiles of the people involved. So, first one is Richard Sykes. A Glaxo Man and Vaccine King is the headline. Richard Sykes is a man of great significance to not only the reformation of the Wellcome Trust in the mid-90s, but also for his supreme position in the official UK vaccine rollout during COVID-19. In 2020, Sykes led an independent review of the workings of, of the Vaccine Task Force 
and on the 14th of June 2021, Sykes was appointed chair of the vaccine task force. In this position, he became responsible for overseeing the delivery of the UK's COVID-19 vaccines, including the preparation for further booster programmes. Sir Richard Brooke Sykes was born 7th of August 1942 near Huddersfield in West Yorkshire to Eric and Muriel Sykes. He would attend Royds Hall Grammar School, the same former Prime Minister the same school former Prime Minister Harold Wilson had once attended. Even before he finished his initial schooling, Sykes had found work as a technician in the pathology laboratory. Sykes would go on to be awarded his PhD in microbial biochemistry from Bristol University. And then in 1972, he was recruited by Glaxo Research Limited as head of its antibiotic research unit. The young Sykes would later move across the pond in 1979 to work for the Squibb Institute for Medical Research, based in Princeton, New Jersey, where between 1983 and 86, he was vice president of infectious and metabolic diseases. In 1986, he rejoined Glaxo in the UK as Deputy Chief Executive of Glaxo Group Research Limited and also became the Group Research and Development Director of Glaxo PLC. A year later, he became Chairman as well as being Chief Executive of Glaxo Group Research Limited. In March 1993, he was appointed Deputy Chairman and Chief Executive of Glaxo PLC. In 1995, the recently knighted Sir Richard Sykes would engineer the merger between Glaxo and Wellcome PLC, which would also see the default creation of, of a new envisioning of the original Wellcome Trust, established as an independent charitable foundation. He would then become chairman and chief executive of Glaxo Wellcome PLC in May 1997 stepping aside the following October. Glaxo Welcome would subsequently merge with SmithKline Beecham to form Glaxo SmithKline PLC in 2000. In 1997, oops, yeah, in 1997, Richard Sykes, who insisted on being called Dr. Sykes, would publish various papers contemplating the future of the pharmaceutical industry and the following year would write a paper on how to be a modern pharmaceutical company. In this paper he argued for companies to share their scientific research data with each other. Between 1997 to 2008 Sykes was also classed as a senior independent director for Rio Tinto PLC, the Anglo-Australian multinational and the world's second largest metals and mining corporation, where Sykes served as chairman of the remuneration committee. Sykes would still be serving as a non-executive director for Rio Tinto in 2003, when Sir John Kerr was also appointed as a non-executive director. Kerr had been a member of the UK diplomatic service for 36 years, 
and its head from 1997 to 2002. On May 20th, 2002, Sykes would stand down as chairman of GlaxoSmithKline PLC at their annual general meeting to concentrate on his role as rector of Imperial College London. In 2003, Imperial College faced accusations of forgery in a prestigious medical journal after it was discovered that a member of their staff forged signatures of seven co-authors on a paper. Sykes would lead the investigation after the New England Journal of Medicine was forced to make the rare step of publishing a retraction. From 2008, Sykes became chairman of NHS London. He stepped down in May 2010 over the decision of the Cameron government to stop the planned reorganisation of healthcare in London. Over the next decade, he would take up various board positions at places such as Eurasian National Research Corp, Lonza Group, a company which later partnered with Moderna to manufacture and produce So I lost my place and produced their COVID-19 vaccine. Net Scientific PLC, the Economic Development Board International, PDS Biotechnology, as well as others. From 2012 until 2018, he was chairman of Imperial College Healthcare NHS Trusts. At this time, he also held such positions as chairman of the Royal Institution of Great Britain, and Chancellor of Brunel University. So he's got his fingers in a lot of pies, this guy. In December 2020, Matt Hancock MP would appoint Sir Richard to conduct an independent review of the strategy and goals of the Vaccine Task Force. He would later be made Chair of the UK Government's Vaccine Task Force a group which would be responsible for achieving three main objectives. Uh, the objectives are secure access to the most promising vaccines for the UK population as quickly as possible. Number two, make provision for international distribution of vaccines so the benefits of UK le leadership and investment in this area could be widely shared. And three, support the UK's industrial strategy by establishing a long-term vaccine strategy to prepare the UK for future pandemics. So it's, it's a long, long article list. So you get the idea, he's profiling five people, and I'm just reading the first one, and it's, it's very detailed. It's a very detailed CV, basically. So the next guy is Sir Roy Anderson. who's a British professor of epidemiology and is the link that connects many of Britain's major modern pandemic responses and the majority of the official cover-ups related to those events. He also happens to be the pioneer of pandemic computer modelling, models which, when applied to real-world situations, have proven to be highly erroneous. So again, this is another guy who's probably involved in Imperial College, I would imagine. There's a whole lot of stuff about Harford Grammar School, 
I studied at Imperial College between 71 and 73. I was an IBM research fellow at the University of Oxford and then went on to lecture for four years at King's College. He was a lecturer at Imperial College for four years in the late 70s. Uh, professor of went on to become Professor of Parasite Ecology uh, Lineker Professor of Zoology at Oxford University so I'm skipping, skipping down the article so there's a lot of so there's a connection to Oxford University Imperial College, King's College, the Royal Society, he's a fellow of the Royal Society. And in 86, he would become known for working on modelling of the AIDS virus. So there's a whole lot of issues around the, about the, around the AIDS virus as well that need to be looked at. So that's where this is all coming from. It's, um, it's the 1980s HIV people. Right, I'm going to skip through some of this because it's quite a very, very long. I I'm going to post it in the chat room for the people who are awake. Because I'm not going to read it all. Link it. I can I can read the link out to you because it's fairly easy to read. So it's johnnyvedmore.com dot com forward slash twenty twenty two slash zero two slash zero eight forward slash the hyphen welcome hyphen five and welcome spelt W E L L C O M E. So with an extra L in it, basically. So I'm not going to go through all of that, but uh, I recommend that you read it and uh, and watch the Plague in Manchuria video, if at all possible. Because the more background people have about these things, the easier it's going to be to stop it happening again. And uh, we've only just started looking at this in detail, I think. Some people might have already known this stuff. I knew about Neil Ferguson. I knew about the Imperial College connection. I knew about the Oxford All Souls College connections to these things. They just hadn't put them all together. But uh, Johnny Vedmore's doing that for me, so I'm, it'll save me a job. I still need to look at Clifton House and the Astors. So that's on my list of things to look at. And uh, there'll be other things as well. I'm going to have a quick look through, change tack completely now for, for five minutes or ten minutes, and we'll just have a look at the the BitChute entertainment category because I'm, I'm feeling the need to entertain myself. So let's, let's just have a look and see what's being uploaded in the last two or three days. I'll just go down the list 
and I'll pick out things that look interesting. A lot of it's very, very similar to, to how it always is. But you've got Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles, uh, Stargate SG-1, looks like season three is being uploaded, up, uploaded now. Andromeda Series 4 is being uploaded. Farscape Series 3. Um, a show called Revolution Series 2. And there's some archive footage. Stories of the Century. Which looks like it's old TV shows. I'm going to have a look at this because I don't know who it is. I don't know exactly what it is. It's old, old, old TV shows. I don't know whether it's a documentary or whether it's drama based on history or what it is. Let's have a quick look. Stories of the century. This is from uh, from Bitchute. smugglers gunned him. Did they get away? No. No, Grat and I got him. Why don't you bring them in? After what they'd done to Frank, we left him for the buzzards. As deputies, it's your job to bring them in. As deputy marshals, we're supposed to do a lot of things. Maybe too many. We don't like what happened to Frank. He ain't the first peace officer ever got killed on the job. I swore you boys in to uphold the law. Well, this is what I think of the law. Me too. Here's mine too. I know you feel bad about Frank, but I don't like your attitude. Maybe we don't like yours. All right, boys, let's take Frank home tomorrow. The 
Dalton brothers, once respected deputy sheriffs, embittered, turned into a band of desperate and clever outlaws. I was sent out to the town of Adair in the Indian Territory to try to help capture them. My name is Matt Clark, and I'm a railroad detective. By prearrangement, I was to meet Frankie Adams here, a shrewd operative for the same railroad company. All right, so that's a show based on based on historic events. They're using a lot of newspaper cuttings, footage, so it's quite visual and uh, wanted posters and things like that. So they're they're telling the story, but it's it's a dramatic reconstruction, really, with some uh, with some fiction in there. I think. Anyway, that's pretty much it from me. Um, I hope you uh, enjoyed the focus on British connections to. The pandemic. Uh, I'm going to do more of these types of shows. I think the more the more I find good art, good sources of articles, I'll look a bit more at the at the history of it and and the background, and we'll put it all together. And it, it's about real people, so it's not about a shadowy elite. They're 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 in full view. They're they're obvious if you know where to look. Because they, they think they're helping. They think they're doing the right thing. And from their point of view, they might be. But from my point of view, they're not. So uh, <clears throat> different, different viewpoints of the same situation. There's always more than one viewpoint. Always more than one. But the last person I want in charge is somebody who's forgot a family history of eugenics. And, uh, and these people... Not specifically the Welcome Five, but uh, the other people involved have got family histories of eugenics, so they're not the right people to put in charge, really. At the, very, at the most basic level, they're not the right people to put in charge of keeping people alive. Um, anyway, that's pretty much it. Thanks for listening. Uh, I know it's, uh, it's early for me, and I messed up the sound, but I think I got away with it. <laughs> Just about. Um I'll be back on Saturday. I don't know what I'm doing on the show on Saturday yet. Um, but it'll be a similar format to this. It'll be about 25, 30 minutes of video footage and me talking for the rest of the time. I'm, if I can find another good article, I'll, I'll read an article. I'll see you then. I'll see you on Tuesday next week for another two-hour round trip. This is Thomas, a.k.a. a mad painter. I'd like you to join me Monday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Open Canvas. Don't forget to bring an open mind. Yes, folks, that's right. Bring an open mind to an open canvas. Again, that is Monday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern. You oppose government corruption. This is Revolution Radio, freedomslips.com. You don't need to expect us. We're already here. We did not engage in conflict that was out of line with our mission. Is it disloyal? Is it 
treason to oppose the hands of tyranny. Never. I will never send troops anywhere on a mission of that kind without telling them that if somebody shoots at them, they can darn well shoot back. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty! Oh, give me death! A dark cloud is finally lifting across the world as U.S. military intelligence and their global partners are destroying the deep state criminal power structure that has ruled over our planet for hundreds of years. We are free with the God-given place, and we shall not yield that right to any power on Earth. Hi, I'm Scott McKay. The world is at, and I am your host on The Tipping Point, on Revolution Radio, where every Monday from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, we bring you the latest in this ensuing takedown of this global criminal empire. That's an image of strength. You'll get the raw, hard truth here on The Tipping Point. So come join us Mondays, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, in Studio B at Revolution.Radio. This is Jim Fetzer inviting you to join me on The Raw Deal, Revolution.